my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. We are beginning today an examination of the book of Kings. Now, if you've got your Bible open in front of you and you're looking at the table of contents and you see 1 Kings and you see 2 Kings, you don't see a book just called Kings, well, don't panic. Remember that in this season and the next season of Bible Lab, we are studying the Old Testament through the lens and in the order of the Bible that Jesus would have learned as a little boy, that order that we call the Tanakh. And in the Tanakh, you don't have First and Second Kings, you have the Book of Kings. They're just combined together, just like we had not First and Second Samuel, we had Samuel, and in the end of season three, we'll have not First and Second Chronicles, but Chronicles. So we are talking about the books, really the book of Kings, the book of First and Second Kings in your Bible. Now that we've addressed that, Let's do what we always do. Remember, friends, that the Old Testament is not a story that takes place once upon a time in a land far, far away. It is a story that really happened to real people in real places in real time. So let's orient ourselves around a timeline. And that is going to be particularly helpful in the book of Kings. So the first fairly dateable event that we can say with some kind of confidence is the birth of Abraham. So if you can imagine a timeline moving from the left to the right, all the way on the left, we're going to have the birth of Abraham. Moving towards the right is getting us closer to the birth of Jesus. All of these dates are going to be BC, before Christ. So 2167 is the birth of Abraham, again, moving from the left to the right. The next event that we're going to see is something called the patriarchal age. Patriarch means founding or ruling father. These are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. Jacob is the last of these patriarchs. When he dies, the family of Abraham has grown to be 70 strong, and they're living in the nation of Egypt. They're going to be there for over 400 years. They will come under Egyptian slavery and oppression, and that oppression and slavery will end in 1446. In 1446, God sends Moses to lead his people out of Egypt in an event we call the Exodus. Moses leads Israel to Mount Sinai, where they go from being the family of Abraham to becoming the nation of Israel. They're going to stay at Mount Sinai for one year, getting organized and prepared to go into the land of Canaan. They should have taken a two-week march from Sinai up the Mediterranean coast into the land of Canaan. But instead, because of their disobedience and rebellion, their hardness of heart, It took 40 years. The entire generation of adults who left Egypt perished in the wilderness. The last of these adults to perish was Moses. And Moses dies in 1406. And the people go in and take the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua leads the people for about 20 or 30 years. They begin to settle into their inheritance. And when Joshua dies, this takes us to the period of the judges. This is going to last for about three centuries. Judges are not courtroom officials, but rather regional military leaders that God raised up to deliver his people from foreign oppression. The last of these judges is a man named Samuel, and Samuel anoints the first king of Israel. That's a man named Saul. We talked about Saul in our study of the book of First and Second Samuel. Saul reigns for about 40 years. He is a terrible king. He does not fear God. He fears man. He is removed from being king over God's people, and that leads us to the first true king of Israel, the king that we want, and that's King David. David also reigns for 40 years. It is to David that God makes the astonishing promise that from David's line will come an eternal king. That, of course, is Jesus, but that's about a thousand years in the future. When David dies after 40 years on the throne, the throne passes to his son Solomon. Solomon's going to reign for 40 years. We'll be talking about Solomon in this series of episodes. And Solomon's going to reign for 40 years, and he builds the temple in Jerusalem. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes the throne. And it's because of Rehoboam that you're so confused about Bible history. So if you've ever been like, ah, 
I don't understand all these dates, all these people. In some ways, you can blame Rehoboam because Rehoboam makes a terrible decision. And because of this terrible decision, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. So you now have Israel in the north that's going to be ruled by 20 different kings from 10 different dynasties. Very confusing. We'll be talking about them later on in this series. But down south, you've got the kingdom of Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. It's where David's sons reign. There's also 20 kings in the Judean Davidic dynasty. Uh, And some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Uh, These kingdoms are not going to last very long. In 722, the kingdom of Assyria is going to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and exile them. And in 586, you're going to see the kingdom of Babylon destroy the southern kingdom of Judah and exile them. It is these kings and these absolutely cataclysmic events that we will be dealing with in our study of the book of Kings. Remember that the book of Kings in this order that we call the Tanakh is one of the prophets, one of the former prophets, giving us a narrative history, basically unbroken, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. This is an unbroken narrative history. It's going to detail the covenant failure and the destruction of the earthly kingdom of Israel, but also implant in us a a hope for kingdom restoration. So let's get our bearing in the book of Kings. Uh, Who wrote it? We don't know, but we do have many different sources mentioned in the books of Samuel and Kings. You know, know, if you want more information, is this not written in this book or this is written in this book over here? So likely an editor or a team of editors compiled these different sources into the book that we call Kings. When? We don't know, but it was likely written over the course of several centuries and put into its final form during the exile. You'll hear me say this a good bit during this series. It'll help you to understand the book of Kings if you think about it as being arranged and given to the people of Israel sitting in Babylonian exile and asking the question, how did we get here? And the answer to the question, how did we get here? The editors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit arranged this narrative to answer that question. Here's how you got into exile because of your rebellion and your breaking of a covenant. Where? The events take place mostly in the land of Canaan, the promised land, but it was put into its final form in Babylon, where many tens of thousands of Jews were in exile. So why do we have this book? Four reasons. One, to provide a national history that covered the monarchic period. From the really the last days of King David to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, it's about 400 years, and this is a history of that time. Second, to explain to the people in exile and the people after the exile the catastrophic loss of land, temple, and heritage. If our God is so powerful and he never breaks a promise, how did we get defeated and kicked out of our land? Well, here's how. Third, to allow the prophets to clarify the consequences of covenant failure. When the prophets are preaching and speaking to the people, both during and after the exile, they could point back to this history and say, If you think I'm bluffing, look at what God did to our ancestors. Look at what we squandered and lost through our rebellion. And fourth, to show that hope still existed for God's people, as it always does, because God is faithful. So let's take a look at our first theme in the book of Kings, and here it is. The author of Kings stressed the role of kingship in the nation's disobedience, division, and destruction. As we have seen many times before, my friends, As the leader of a people go, so go that people. And it's no different in Israel. So the book of Kings is going to overview the rise, fall, division, and destruction of what, at the beginning of the book, is the united nation of Israel. 
And this book, as you can tell from the name, specifically deals with the office of kingship. Even more specifically, the positive and negative impacts a king had on the people. Now, from a narrative standpoint, the book opens with an aging David. 1 Kings 1.1, Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. So our once mighty hero David is an old, old, weak man shivering in his bed. Now David has many sons, but he ultimately names his son Solomon as his successor. 1 Kings 1.28-30, Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba, that's Solomon's mom, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Let's talk about Solomon. So first we can say about Solomon that he was gifted with riches, wisdom, and honor. God appears to Solomon and asks, What do you want? I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon, instead of asking for a long life or wealth or victory over his enemies, asks for wisdom. And here's what God says to that. I give you also, because you've asked for wisdom, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So Solomon was given riches, wisdom, and honor beyond all the kings of the earth. Second, we can say of Solomon that he established Israel as the chief kingdom of the world. Because Solomon was so very wealthy and so very wise, everyone from all around the ancient world wanted to come and hear and see Solomon. It says in 1 Kings 4, 20 and 21, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Third, we can say of Solomon, and this is maybe the most important thing we can say about him, that he built Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. He built the temple and the presence of God filled this building, one of the most dramatic and important events of the Old Testament. But tragically, we can also say about Solomon that he turned away from God in his later years. The author records for us in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the result of this idolatry was tragic. The entire nation was set on a course that would lead first to division, then to diminishment, and finally to destruction and exile. As God says in 1 Kings 11, verses 11 and 13, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. 
However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So after Solomon's death, true to his word, God divides the kingdom of Israel into two nations. We have Israel in the north and we have Judah in the south, ruled by the line of David. Let's talk first about the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Now, you'll often see them called Ephraim. You'll see them called Samaria. But this is the same group of people. The northern ten tribes form the nation of Israel. The first king is that servant that God mentioned in 1 Kings 11.11, a man named Jeroboam. He built idols for the people to worship. He built golden calf idols, which if you're, you know, you've read through the Old Testament, you think, are you kidding me, Jeroboam? Golden calf, of all the things you're going to build, golden calf altars? But what Jeroboam feared is that if the people in the north that he was leading went back to Jerusalem for the feasts, as was commanded by the law of Moses, then they would end up falling back under the throne of David and killing Jeroboam. So Jeroboam builds these golden calf shrines in the north and in the south and tells the people to worship there. The northern kingdom is off on a very bad start, and unfortunately this start is not going to be corrected. The northern kingdom will be defined by military strife, both with their neighbors but also within, and it's going to be defined by covenant disloyalty to Yahweh. Kings were murdered and constantly replaced by kings who in turn be murdered by another, and of the 20 kings of Israel, none of them obeyed God. Jeroboam becomes the the first and in many ways the standard of wickedness that each king is compared to, and sadly, each king meets that standard. As you'll hear this and read this over and over again, for example, 1 Kings 15, 34, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. As goes the kings, so go the people. The northern kingdom is going to be destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C., And this destruction is in accordance with the covenant promises made long before. 2 Kings 17 records for us the destruction and exile of the northern kingdom. And we read this. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, that's the capital city of Israel, and he carried away the Israelites to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Haber, the river of Gosan, and in the cities of the Medes. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, this is verse 21, They made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And again, this is exactly what God said would happen. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy. So this is 700 years before this exile happened. And here's what Moses said to the people. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. This is exactly what happened. And the kingdom of Israel ceases to exist in 722. So what about the southern kingdom? Well, it's ruled by the line of David. And though the kingdom lasts longer, they're really not that much better. Over and over again, God says, the only reason you're still here, Judah, only reason you're still here, David dynasty, is because of that promise I made to David in 2 Samuel 7. 1 Kings 15, 4. 
Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. So even when the kings are just as wicked, if not worse, than the northern kings, the dynasty continues because of God's faithfulness. These kings who rule in the south are basically a mixed bag. You've got 20 kings. Eight of them were good, but only two of them are all good. The other six are some good, some bad. One of the kings, Manasseh, is the worst of all the kings that we read about in this book. And he is the one whose wickedness seals Jerusalem's fate. It says of Manasseh in 2 Kings 21, 9, they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You remember the Canaanites were so wicked that God said to Israel, it's not that you're so good that you're getting the land. It's that they're so bad. And so I'm using you to drive them out as discipline. Well, now here we are, fast forward 700, 900 years later, and the people have become worse than the Canaanites. So you know what's going to happen. They are going to be driven out. As a result of their wickedness, God says finally in 2 Kings 23, 27, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. And true to his word, Judah is destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. The temple where God's presence was dwelling for all these centuries was destroyed, and the people are taken out of the promised land. Now, the reason that we spend so much time on the kings of Israel and Judah and not on the common people is because, as we know, humans are going to play a central role in God's purposes, and God intends for the leaders over these groups of people to have an enormous influence. As the king goes, so go the people. And Kings, the book, shows us how the monarchy fails in Israel. The problem that crops up over and over again in every single one of these kings' hearts is sin. Rich, poor, young, old, every single human being infected by the disease of sin. And so the solution is that we need a gracious, faithful God to bring his promised deliverer to rescue us from the mess that we have gotten ourselves into. Yahweh had been and would be faithful to his promises, both to curse and to bless. And that is our hope, my friends. Embedded in all of these judgments, there is a silver lining of hope. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. And so our hope, as we read through the book of Kings, and as we look at our own life, is that God will continue to be faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. And we know that he always will be. He is always worth our trust and our worship. God will never fail to be faithful. So friends, the next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to look at the role of the prophets in the nation of Israel. But for now, take up and read. God bless. 